welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our online audience. Thank you for joining us. Uh, just so you guys know, we're going to be doing communion later on this morning. If you want to kind of partake from home, uh, maybe you can grab some elements while we're, uh, while we're listening to the message. Uh, and if you have your Bibles with you, uh, extra brownie points for you. Uh, God will be happy now. <clears throat> no, that's not true. Uh, but if you want, you can turn to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be uh, speaking from this morning. We're going to be continuing off uh, where we left off last week. Uh, which was looking at this concept of conflict. Isn't that exciting? Hey, more conflict, right? And we said last week that conflict is one of those things that is guaranteed in life. It's going to happen. It's bound to happen because there's, there's a number of different reasons for it. Uh, one might be just that we're different people and we have different opinions, meaning that we might have different ideas about how to solve the same problem. And, and that's okay. Sometimes conflict, though, might be from sinful choices that we or other people make. And those sinful choices end up hurting not just ourselves, but those around us as well. And we said sometimes conflict can happen from miscommunication. That's a big one, where two people are fighting with each other, but really over two different conversations happening at the same time. And then, of course, a big one is that the reality is that we have an enemy out there, an enemy who is actively engaged in trying to create wedges, create divisions within people, especially within the household of God, within the people of God, within the church. And, and what ends up happening sometimes is, is we unwittingly, as Christians, can participate in that and become now vessels of, of that, that uh, division and dissent that our enemy is trying to sow. And we saw that was really the case here of the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth, and that this was the reason for the letter, that there was conflict between them, and it was being addressed. And the conflict really was rooted in at least a person or maybe even a group of people that were actively undermining the Apostle Paul, that were trying to, to assassinate his character, trying to say that he's really just arrogant and he lacks humility and he's just using you for that reason. All he cares about is money and he's not as good as the other apostles. All this was happening and, and the, the, causing the conflict within the church. Now, for some of you, you might be discouraged by this fact, that, that conflict can happen even amongst Christians. Because, you know, after all, shouldn't Christians just get along all the time? And the answer is no, because conflict isn't bad. It's not necessarily bad. Maybe I should qualify that. In the sense that it can actually be good and healthy. Now, yes, some conflict is miserable. Some conflict is, is strictly the result of poor choices, of sinful choices, and, and could have been avoided. But some conflict can be very good and very healthy. Because conflict, sometimes what it can do is it can strengthen or refine character. It can help people to discover what really matters sometimes. Sometimes we get so distracted with what's going on in the world and in our small world and our job and you know, retirement packages and all those things, things that don't really matter in the big picture, and then suddenly now a, a moment of conflict comes, and suddenly you remember what really does matter, the things that are critical, the things that are important. And so sometimes that conflict can actually serve to kind of refocus our attention. 
But also what it can do, as I said, it can refine our character because it can sometimes test our character. It can kind of show what, what kind of a people we are. As the old adage goes, you don't really know what you have in a person until they face conflict. Which, by the way, is if you're dating someone, make sure you see them in conflict. So I heard this one that you, what you want to do is you want to play a sport with them or play a game with them where hopefully they lose. <laughs> because how they react will say a lot about things. I'm glad I found that out now and not while I was dating Joy. Otherwise, she never would have married me. <laughs> Thank goodness for uh, being naive. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> the last thing, though, what we said last week, what was so critical then. So conflict isn't to be avoided. It's something that we experience. It's something that God's using. But what we want to do is we want to find a way through the conflict. Right? We want to find a way that we can survive the conflict together. And what we saw, the key of that was our unity in Jesus. Right, That's what's going to hold us together. Because if it's, if it's anything other than Jesus that holds that relationship together, it's going to be in trouble. Think about marriages. There are many marriages out there that are together only for the kids, for the sake of the kids. Well, eventually, those kids grow up and leave. It might be getting later and later, now in the 30s and maybe 40s, but eventually those kids will leave, right? Amen? And when they leave, what happens to the marriage? If it was solely based on the kids, they will quickly discover that they had no marriage at all anymore. Or maybe a friendship is, is based on the job, based on where you work. And the moment then that, that employment ends or, or something happens to the job, the friendship disappears. Even a church. If a church is held together strictly by the style of worship or the style of teaching, and I emphasize the word style there, if that's what holds it together, you take one of those away and the church will begin to fall apart. And you see that sometimes when a, when a pastor moves on and whether he retires or he's called to another church and suddenly the church begins to fracture a little bit because they were held together by the style of that teacher. And that's not what holds us together. As believers, what holds us together is the fact that we, you and I are united as one in Jesus Christ. There's one body, one church of Jesus Christ. And because of this union, nothing can truly divide us. And, and what that means is that you, you and I, we can share different political ideology, meaning you can support the policies of Trudeau or Trump or Biden or even, Pu even Putin. And you know what? That's okay. We don't have to agree. There's still a seat at the table for you to have those ideas, those beliefs. You can believe in a pre-tribulation, a mid-tribulation, or a post-tribulation rapture. You may even believe that there's no rapture coming, that it's already all those passages in Revelation are talking about the past. You can believe all that. You'd be wrong on some of those issues, maybe, but you can believe all that and still have a place at seat at the table. You could even believe that people must give 10% of their income or that the King James Bible is the only true word of God, and you'd still be loved. We don't have to agree, because what unites us is Jesus, and he's greater, much greater than what divides us. Beautiful. This morning, what we want to do, though, is we want to look at how do we heal the relationship after the conflict. And that's what Paul's going to kind of lay out for us. He's going to kind of describe for us here. Because regardless of the conflict, whether it was a result of sinful choices or misunderstandings or, or mischief from the enemy or even that kind of conflict that was necessary out of love, there's always going to be some damage. 
Like a ship that's gone through a storm and taken on some water, it's going to need some repairs. It's going to need some healing. And so that's the case here. And what I believe is that, that what Paul and the church of Corinth have gone through, we can learn from and benefit from as we see a pathway of restoration or a pathway of reconciliation. So let's pray. Father, this is a topic that, that we've all experienced that we've all walked through in some form, some in really healthy ways and some in really, really hurtful ways. And so I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would, through your spirit, speak through me, and maybe even more importantly, take your truth and make it real in our hearts, that we would see this, that there is hope, that there is a way that we can get through this conflict and even be stronger for it, be better off for it but most of all, be made, he- made whole and healed as a result of what we go through. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the first five verses, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 2, but the first five verses is really Paul continuing on where he left off at the end of chapter 1, right? Please understand, it's not a new chapter, it's not a new thought, a new idea, that the chapters and verses were added afterwards. This is a letter that Paul wrote, and they all kind of flow one into the other. And so let's read those first five verses together. And what I want you to see here is the heart of Paul. And and, and there's a word here, sorrow, appears over and over again. In the first seven verses of this chapter alone, the word sorrow appears eight times. So you can see what's on Paul's heart. But more importantly, I want you to see what is Paul's heart towards these Corinthian believers. So he writes in verse 1, For I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Remember, he had to change his travel plans. And initially, he was going to go visit the the church in Corinth and then go up to Macedonia. And he decided to do it another way around, right? And, And he's explaining why that was the case. I did not want to come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Just stick that verse in your, in your mind. We'll come back to it later on. Verse 3, this is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Do you see the heart of Paul? I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful. I didn't want to punish you. I didn't want to make you miserable. That was not my end goal in all this, but that you might know the love which I especially have for you. It was out of love that he he confronted them. It was out of love that he wrote this sorrowful letter to them. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order to not say too much to all of you. And so he's, he's kind of you know, wrapping that part up, and he's now going to be, begin a section on how do we move forward? How do we now heal from all this? And I believe that verses 6 to 11 is going to give us a pathway of restoration. You see, essentially what's happened is that, the, that there's is an offense. That's what kicks everything off, some kind of offense, some kind of hurt, be it intentional or unintentional being it for for good reasons or even for sinful reasons. There's some kind of offense. And then that offense has to, the next step of that is is forgiveness and repentance. And we're going to explain what that means, but there's two separate steps there. And then finally, you can begin to reconcile or rebuild that trust. All right, so let's, let's understand the offense part and why it's so bad. See, relationships are fueled by trust. 
Relationships are dependent upon trust. You take away trust, you destroy the relationship. Because the reality is you can only give and receive love to the degree to which you trust the other person. Think about it. If I, if I don't trust someone and then they're offering me compliments, what's going to be my reaction? I'm not going to believe it. Right? So if, if Wes says something kind about me, but I think he's a bit shady, I'm going to think he's probably trying to manipulate me. He's trying to control me. He's not sincere. He's not genuine. So you know what? Thank you, Wes, but we'll put it over here. And I got my walls up. I got my barriers up. And so without that kind of trust, I'm guarded and I'm rejecting any kind of love that comes my way. Because I think it's, it's suspicious. It's too shady. And so at best, his love for me is hollow. At worst, it's manipulative. And so when offense occurs, there's a breakdown of that trust. And now there's a wedge, there's a, there's a gap, there's a separation in the relationship. And if we don't address the broken trust, we become prisoners. We become prisoners. We become hard in our hearts. Or we become lonely and isolated. Maybe anger begins to stir up and we become bitter and alone. Our, our, our soul becomes hollowed out. And most, maybe most damaging, we're, we're especially vulnerable now to the attacks of the enemy. And like an unclean, untended wound, it will begin to fester and cause all kinds of problems in all areas of your life. Think about it this way. If, if you've got a bad knee, your knee's all wonky, it's all sore, and so you're kind of walking and you're favoring it now. You're, you're, you're not walking properly. Well, what begins to happen is that pain in that knee, your body's trying to compensate, and so now your hips kind of get out of joint. And that causes a problem in your hips, so then your lower back's starting to compensate. Now your lower back's hurting, and so that goes all the way up your, your upper back. And now in between your shoulders and, and your upper back and your neck, it's got all kinds of pain because your, your spine's doing this, which isn't healthy, by the way. That's, that's what I'm told, right? It's going all over the place, and then you have the stress of the pain, and so your whole body, your whole being now is beginning to break down all because you got a bad knee. And so that pain and that trouble, it begins to radiate. And that's what's happening here, is that if we don't address the wound, if we don't address the offense, then that hurt will radiate into other relationships. So I don't trust Wes, so now I struggle to trust Mike, which might be why. No, no, so I struggle to trust Mike, right? And, now, and with Devin, and then, so now I, I start to, to get jumpy around people in general. So we need to address it. And, and what I want you to see is at the beginning, there are separate paths for the person who did the offense and the person who was offended initially. They're going to come back together, right? Because there has to be reconciliation. But the first step is done independently. And it's done regardless of whether reconciliation takes place. So let's start with the person who's been offended. And that first step is forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said that we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. It's hard to forgive people sometimes. It's hard to, to release that debt because we're, we're afraid that maybe if I forgive them, then they're, I'm letting them off the hook. If I forgive them, maybe they're going to do it again. If I forgive them, then maybe it's, it's just you know, saying it was OK. 
And the reality of forgiveness, you have to understand this, is forgiveness is for the person who is offended, first and foremost. If I'm hurt by someone, when I forgive that person, I'm setting a prisoner free only to discover that I was the prisoner. Because that bitterness is destroying me. And I've seen it countless times where, where people are offended by other people and, and then they, they are hurt even more to realize that the other person doesn't even think about it, doesn't care, doesn't worry about it. But they're sitting up late at night, stewing over it, thinking about it over and over and over again, and it's driving them batty. And so forgiveness is to set us free. And so what does that mean? We, we looked at this when we were going through the book of Ephesians. And so if you want to study this idea, this concept of forgiveness out more, I encourage you, go look up Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. This is what those verses say. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We saw what forgiveness, when we were going through that in Ephesians, we saw forgiveness is, is, you know, first acknowledging the hurt, admitting that it hurt me, admitting that, that that wounded me in some way, and then counting the cost. What was the impact of that action? The action itself really isn't what's so damaging as much as the impact of it. So if a little kid, if you were being bullied growing up, the act of bullying is one thing, but the cost is what the bullying does to your soul what the bullying does to your self-esteem and how you see yourself going forward and how that begins to radiate into other relationships. So you start to see the cost of that, the rejection, the, the feeling weak or the feeling taken advantage of or the feeling of unloved or, or worthless or feeling inadequate or inferior, whatever the damage to your heart. How did that action make you feel about yourself going forward? That's the cost. And that's so critical because then forgiveness is me handing it over to Jesus. Right? Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another just as in the same way that God in Christ forgave you and I. God didn't explain it away. He didn't justify your sin. He didn't minimize your sin. He didn't pretend it didn't happen. There was a sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins, it says in Hebrews 9.22. And so Jesus was the sacrifice. He paid for my sins against him and sent them away. They're gone now. In the same way, Jesus died for those people who sinned against me. And so the sins against me now, I can choose to hand them over to Jesus and say, Jesus, you paid their debt. And so the, the love that this person owes me, they don't owe me anymore because Jesus, you want to give me that love. Do you see it? Do you see the freedom? You're not still left holding the debt and just writing off the debt and say, yeah, that debt's never going to get paid. Write it off. Lost income. Off we go. No, no. The balance sheet is made whole because Jesus pays the debt that another person owed me. That love, that acceptance, that worth, that significance. Jesus says, I want to give you, but I can't give you until you let go of the debt, until you let go of what's hurting you. And so the person who's been offended needs to forgive. And again, it's for you, for your sake, for your benefit, because otherwise that bitterness will begin to destroy you. Now, again, please understand, forgiveness is not reconciliation. They are two independent things. And I think that's what people have mistaken it as, that to truly forgive someone means that you have to go back to the way that things were before they ever committed the offense. No, that's not forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is simply to release the debt, to send it away. And please understand, as we're going to see, forgiveness doesn't even guarantee reconciliation. It's simply cleaning the wound to allow time to heal it. Think about it. Ever heard the phrase, time heals all wounds? That's not true. What happens to a wound that's dirty and infected with time? It gets worse, festers. Things begin to grow in there that shouldn't be growing in there. And so what you need to do, you clean the wound so that time can begin to heal it. And that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is an act. It's a moment in time of cleaning the wound that allows time now to heal it, which is that reconciliation process that we're going to look at. Now, just a quick aside here, because sometimes people say, well, if I forgive this person, do I need to go and tell them that I forgive them? Well, it depends. Depends on the reconciliation stage. But what I've seen happen is that people would go to someone else to forgive them, but they're really using it as a bit of a shot, a bit of an opportunity to kind of send a message. So it'd be like, uh, Jeremy's hurt me, so I'm going to go up to Jeremy and say, Jeremy, I want you to know that I've forgiven you. You know, just a little bit, look at me. I've chosen to forgive you, Jeremy, for all your offense and all your crimes and all your stupidity. I've chosen, though, to forgive you, just so we are clear of that. And what does that do? It's just a shot at Jeremy. And I've seen it time and time again, where people aren't acknowledging any of the things that they've done wrong, but they're just simply trying to, to take a, a, a higher view or lord it over someone else altogether. And that's not the point of it, because all that does is show off your own self-righteousness. So that's not what it's for, right? It's, it's for me, so I don't carry the bitterness anymore. So that's, that's what's happening to the person who's been offended. But the person who did the offense, they play a key part in this stage, too. And what they need to do is they need to acknowledge their sin. They need to acknowledge that what they did was wrong. They need to acknowledge the hurt. And sometimes what that means is bringing the sin into the light. Sometimes that means is, is understanding that, that when that's being exposed is an incredible gift. Because what's happened is up to that moment, you're in bondage to that sin. It's controlling you. It's dominating you. And when you bring it into the light, you could experience that freedom. And so sometimes the best thing that could ever happen to you is getting caught and being convicted of that sin in the sense of, of recognizing what it is is wrong and you don't want to do it anymore. And so maybe that's an affair. Maybe it's an addiction to alcohol or to pornography. Maybe it's a fraud or a theft or, or even just a critical judgmental attitude where we're gossiping about other people. Before healing can happen, before reconciliation or restoration can happen, that sin needs to be brought into the light. Now, it doesn't mean that when it is brought into the light, we downplay it. And I see this often. For example, yes, I, I do get drunk. Yes, I struggle with alcohol, but, but it's under control. I, 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 I can stop it. It's, it's, not, it's not too bad. Or, yeah, I, I sometimes I, I, I use pornography, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And really, it doesn't really impact anyone else. It's just a, it's a victimless crime. Or, yeah, it, it was just one time. All of those statements serve one purpose, and that is to minimize and reduce our offense. But in doing so, we're not actually acknowledging it. We're not actually taking ownership for what we've done wrong. 
And so what, and what's happening in these, in these cases here is the person is lying. They're, they're lying about what's happened. They're, they're trying to, to alter the story, alter the narrative, to make it sound less bad so that we don't have to actually address it. And so this person is lying to the other people, but first and foremost, they're lying to themselves. They're lying to themselves about this idea that they, they've got it all under control. And so acknowledging our sin, owning that sin, that first thing is being honest with ourselves, dropping the mask and pretending that we have it all together, that everything's fine and there are no problems. We take ownership of it. And that, that ownership produces a remorse, a sorrow, a godly sorrow that can lead to repentance. See, look what Paul, later on, he's going to write again, referring to this letter, same, same book, in chapter, uh, chapter 7 of the book. In verse 8, he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. I mean, he didn't want to hurt them, but he doesn't regret hurting them. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though for a little while. I, my heart's not to hurt you. But the purpose was good. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Let's, let's understand this word repentance. Too often I hear, I hear within the Christianity this idea of repentance means to turn the other way, to, to change your behavior. That's not what the word means. That may be the outcome of it, but that's not what the word means. The word repentance literally means to change your mind, to change what you're thinking about something. So for example, if you like country music, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You're thinking about country music and come to the light, and it'll be good for you. It'll be healthy for you, right? So that's what it is. You're changing your thinking about it. Now, does that lead you to listen to less country music? Maybe, hopefully. Be good for your soul, right? <laughs> Just saying. It's the word of God. It's in there somewhere, right? So, so repentance means changing your mind about something. And that's when we talk about re repentance of sin, it's changing your mind about sin more than anything, meaning that you thought it was OK to drink yourself stupid. You thought it was OK to look at pornography. You thought it was OK to be controlling and manipulative. You thought it was OK to be, use anger as a, as a way to protect yourself. You thought it was OK to withdraw. You thought it was OK to look down on other people. And you thought it was OK because you did it. I don't mean that it was kind of sin you just stumble into. No, this was something that was part of your, your habits and your lifestyle. And you have that moment of repentance. Oh, what a good thing that is. Now, the English word sucks, by the way. The English word repentance means to do penance again, to do punishment and pay for that punishment again. That's a horrible word. That's not what the writers in the New Testament were talking about. The, they were talking about changing your thinking about it. And so he's saying here that this, this godly sorrow, this remorse, that when you see the damage of what you've done and you say, oh, my soul, what's happened here? What, what damage have I caused this relationship to my family, to those around me, even to myself? What am I doing? That's what I'm looking for in a person. Because that, that oh, my soul, that godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's not the sorrow of the world. 
which either is just simply to condemn you and make you feel miserable at yourself so the other person can control you more and use that sin against you in, in forever and ever, or nor is it just simply a fake sorrow in order to manipulate the other person into forgiving me and moving forward. No, that real repentance is from that, that deeply godly sorrow that leads to change. Look what Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. He says, be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, if he changes his mind, forgive him. Now, please understand, the word rebuke is not slap him in the face. It's not beat him up in any way. But you confront him on it in a loving way. Speak truth in love. In verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. You see, that, that remorse, that godly sorrow is so important because what it conveys, what it shows to the other person is you understand what you've done is wrong. You understand the hurt that you've brought into the relationship. And because they've seen that hurt, because they've seen that understanding, I can now begin to start to trust you again. But if I don't see a godly sorrow, if I don't see that person taking ownership for what they've done, instead, if I see them sort of trying to manage the consequences, manage the outcome of it, and just still trying to protect themselves and agree to as much as they need to to get to the next stage, but never really facing it, tells me they haven't really learned anything, and that nothing's really changed, and they're really just going to continue down this path again and again and again, because they're not really sorrowful about their choices, they're merely sorrowful about the outcome or that they've been caught. And so it's so critical for the person who's done that offense to take that moment and to sort of look in the mirror and chat with Jesus about what's happened and not blame anyone else. Yes, there might be other extenuating circumstances that led to those choices, but you made that choice. And that's the reality of it. No one makes me angry. No one, no one makes me do certain things. I choose to do that. So Greg might mistreat me. He might come after me. There's something about the Ballard boys, Denise. I think you need to sit them down a little bit. But, but maybe Greg does something. He offends me, and I'm just boiling inside, and I slap him. And I say, well, you made me do that. No. No matter what he did, I chose that as a response. And so I need to own that. I need to take acknowledgment of that. And that's what's so critical. And if I do acknowledge that and own that, now there's a chance for Greg and I to reconcile our relationship. And that's the third stage. So there's that first stage of the offense. And then there's the individual work that's done by the person who's been offended and the person who's, been who's done the offense. The person who's been offended needs to work through that forgiveness. And the person who's done the offense needs to acknowledge the offense for what it is. Acknowledge a sin for what it is. And now the two parties can come together and begin to rebuild that trust. But please understand, forgiveness doesn't guarantee reconciliation. If that person's not really remorseful or repentant, it's going to be really difficult to, if not impossible, to rebuild that trust. And so reconciliation requires two people. Now, there's some good news in that. If I'm the one who's been offended, I can still forgive even if the other person doesn't acknowledge their sin. 
Because that work of forgiveness is, is, is my part. It's independent of the other person. In the same way, if I've done the offense, if I've hurt someone, I can still acknowledge that sin. I can still work through all that and get the help so I don't keep making that sin anymore. I can do that regardless of the other person forgives me or not. That's the work that's being done in me. But if you have two people who do both of their, their work and now they come together, now they can begin to rebuild that trust. Maybe. And I say that because there are some, some offenses that are maybe impossible to restore trust on this side of eternity. Some, some breakdowns in trust are just too big. And that's OK. For example, sexual abuse. I mean, think about it. If a, if a family friend abuses your children, there's a lot of work to be done there. There's a lot of healing to be done there. And that forgiveness and, and the healing from the messages that shame is trying to attack your child with. And, and so there's a lot of healing that can take place there. And maybe that person even, hopefully, God willing, they, they have that godly sorrow. They have that deep remorse that leads to repentance. And they are changed. But am I going to subject my children now to hanging out with that person who's offended them? I don't, I don't think that's fair. Now, maybe. I don't want to rule out, the, rule out what God can do, but I don't think it has to be that way. I think when Jesus talked about uh, adultery and divorce and saying that the, you know, the adultery is a legitimate reason for divorce, I think he had this in mind. That maybe that there's an adultery that takes place within a relationship where, where the, the two spouses now, they, they, the one in particular just can't get over it, can't get past that breakdown of trust. And Jesus understood that. And rather than forcing the two to stay together, he says, it's OK to divorce. It's OK to go in peace. And so that sometimes that hurt can be too big. We still forgive because it sets us free. We still acknowledge a sin because that sets us free from the bondage of that sin as well. But maybe that relationship will never be the same. And that's OK. But often. Often there can be healing. Often there can be restoration. And, and depending on the, the nature of the offense, depending on how many times the offense has been committed, this can take some time. And that's OK. I think both parties here need to be patient. They need to understand that, that it's not going to be a, a quick fix, that, that that trust is so valuable and so critical, but also can be so fragile that it takes time to heal. But even in that, by being patient, by willing to play the long game, you're conveying a message that says that you're more important than me than my immediate comfort. You see, the fact that it takes a long time is hard. It, it, it wears on your soul. But, but it's basically saying you're worth the fight. You're worth the time and investment. And in this time of reconciliation, your goal can't simply be, let's get back to the way things were as they were before. Let's just, let's just sweep this under the rug. Let's just, let's just get back to the thing. Let's just ignore it. No, you have to be intentional about building and earning the trust back. And so here are some things you can do that would help that, I think. Number one is understanding. Just understanding that the other person doesn't have much trust right now. Understand that they're guarded. Understand that they're, they're, they, don't, they don't trust, that they're, 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 they're suspicious, and, and they're, they're cautious around you. That's OK. 
Be patient with that. When there's a sin like adultery or, or drunkenness or pornography, it's important to show that there's a change of heart towards that sin. That's that, that owning it, right? So for example, but, but even going forward with that, understanding that that person might be afraid that it's going to happen again. And so in this case, maybe in the case of an affair or pornography, maybe you don't hide your electronics, your phone and your messages and so forth, where that other person can say, you know what, I know it might be immature of me, but can I see your phone? Here it is. And they can see those messages. And hopefully they're not doing that you know, 15 years down the road, but maybe at the beginning they need to do that, just simply so they have confidence that this other person has changed. Because the reality is, when someone says to me that they've shown that remorse, time is the only thing that's going to prove that's true or not. I remember working with a, a couple, and, uh, and this guy, he was, he was getting ready to, to blow up his marriage. He, he wanted to, to be with another woman. And, and so he's sitting with me on my couch, and he's explaining this to me, and I'm, I'm trying to warn him. And I'm trying to say to him, you, you realize you're driving your marriage and your family over a cliff. Do you, do you not see what you're about to do? And he says, I, I know, I know. I said, you're, you're, you're this close to it. And all he could do is shrug his shoulders. And he left my office that, that morning and determined to, to just blow up his marriage and his family. And then God got a hold of him that night. He was confronted by his wife, that rebuke in a healthy way. She didn't beat him up. She was, she was heartfelt and to the point. And he had that remorse. He had that repentance. Called me up the next morning. Can we meet again? I said, absolutely. So I met him again that morning, right, bright and early. I don't think he got much sleep. But everything was changed. Did I immediately just say, oh, great, praise the Lord. Let's move on. No, I've, I've seen this record play out before. And sometimes they, they say that just because they got caught. But time has proven over the years that God got a hold of them, that there was a godly sorrow that led to true repentance. And now they're together, and their marriage is restored. It took time. It took effort. But it was possible. Another thing to do is be open with the, uh, the other person about your struggles. Because the reality is that you have that moment, chances are, for most people, the problem doesn't immediately disappear. Struggle with alcohol or pornography or even with, with illicit relationships, chances are it doesn't instantly disappear in a, in a moment. It can, because God can do anything. But for many people, it's a battle they might continue to face. Maybe not to the same degree, but there's always going to be that temptation. And so when you're tempted, be honest. Don't hide it. Don't pretend that everything's all, all fine and dandy and, and you're never going to struggle again because that's not the case. So be honest with the other person because what that does actually is it shows that you are trustworthy. Hey, I'm, I was tempted to do this, but I, I decided not to. Or this person contacted me, but I, I blocked their number and I want nothing to do with it. And what that's doing is it's earning back the trust from the other person. And the last bit of counsel I'd give you again is, is take your time. Take your time. Be patient with that person as they rebuild that trust in you. That's a lot for what the person who's done the offense does. But the person who is offended plays a key part in reconciliation. 
And that's what Paul's going to tell us beginning in verse 6 here. He says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. All right, let's start with the such as one first, because that just comes first in the passage. The such a one is Paul making a general concept, a general statement, meaning it's not to this one person in particular, but rather in any case, whenever this happens, such as this situation, this is what we are to do. He says, so such a one is this punishment which is inflicted by the majority. I don't like the word punishment here. I think that word punishment is, is a bit misleading. It's, it's sometimes translated as penance or, or to pay a penalty, and that's where this idea comes from. But the word here is only used one time in the New Testament, right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, not used anywhere else. But it's related to another word, which is most often translated as rebuke. And I think that's a better translation here. And so this, he says that basically, and for such a, a, a situation as this, the rebuke, which came from the majority, is enough. But when you read it as punishment, which has been inflicted, which, by the way, inflicted is not in the original text. That's been added by the translators. And so be better to be translated, I think, that for such a case as this, the, the rebuke, the, the being confronted, is enough. Assuming that it's done its purpose, that has led to that repentance. Think about it. When Matthew 18, where, where Jesus talks to Peter and his disciples, and he's talking about how do you, what do you do when your brother sins? What's the first instruction, the first step? If you know your brother's in sin, what do you do? Go to them in private. And if he repents, you've won a brother. If he doesn't, you go with another person. Now two or three go and confront him. That's the rebuke. And if he repents, you've won a brother. If that still doesn't work, now you bring it before the, the church and address it publicly in that way. But that's the, that's the sense here, that there's this rebuke, this correction done in love that can hopefully lead to repentance. In this case, because it has, he says, that's enough. You don't need to inflict more. You don't need to say, OK, now here are the consequences. You're going to sit in the corner. And you're not going to allow to be on the worship team for six weeks, and, and on and on and on. He says, no, no, they've, they've changed. And so they're beginning now to rebuild that trust. And so in essence, what he's saying here in verse 6 is, so when the conflict happens, when there's a breakdown in relationship, here's what's going to happen next. And so he goes on in, now in verse 7. So that on the contrary, rather than inflicting more pain and sorrow, on the, contrary, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Look at that. The person who's been offended, what are they to offer? You should offer forgiveness and comfort. Now, first off, I think it's interesting you said you say you should, which I think tells us that it's not a guarantee. It's not you have to offer comfort, right? For example, someone abuses my kids. It's not my kid's job to comfort that person who abused them. So it may not be case in every situation. I think that's why Paul didn't make it an imperative command. It should. In general, all things being within the bounds of what's normal in terms of conflict, the person who's been offended should forgive and should now offer that comfort. And that word forgive there is literally offer grace or grant grace. What a great description. 
It's more than just forgive. Right? You need to forgive, send the debt away. But in this case here, it's forgive and more. It's, it's now offer grace and comfort in return for what, they, what they've experienced. Now, why is that so important? Because the reality is the only person that can help that person who did the offense and then they're in that sorrow, the only person that can let them out is the person that hurt, was hurt. Isn't that true? Think about it. When, when, you've, when you've hurt someone and you've offended them, you're feeling miserable inside because you're, you're seeing the pain you've caused. The only person that can take that away is the other person saying, it's okay. I forgive you. Not what you did was okay, but we'll get through it together. And that's what he's saying here. So this, this beautiful picture now of, of healing can take place. And it can build again over time. Let me, let me illustrate this way, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close quickly afterwards. Is I want you to think about your, your heart, your soul, as like a house. And, and within a house, there are many rooms. And, 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 and even just a property in general, right? You have your front porch, and then you have the, the hallway, the entranceway, and then you have your living room and your, your kitchen and dining room area, and then you even have your bedrooms and, and, and so forth. You have all these different rooms in your house. And, and each room really shows a different level of intimacy that you have with someone, right? So for example, the, the Amazon delivery guy, he doesn't get past my front porch, right? That's as far as he goes. And, uh, and maybe, maybe someone, uh, you know, a, a distant friend, maybe they come in, maybe it's the entranceway, maybe it's the living room, but that's probably about it. And then maybe I have a close friend and they're, they're in the kitchen now and we're having a meal together and we're sharing great time together. Right? With each room, it's, it's more intimate. It's, it's more, more special. And then eventually, you've got like, your bedroom. That's like for your family now. And so when there's a fence, what's happened is that person now has lost some privileges or access. And what that means, sometimes maybe that access goes from the, the living room to, OK, now it's the front entrance. Because that hurt needs to, we need to create some space here. Because that offense has overrun some barriers. It's not okay to treat me that way. And sometimes that offense may be so bad that they're kind of banished to the sidewalk. But when they rebuild that trust, then over time, okay, come on the front porch. Okay, come on inside to the entranceway. All right, now let's have a seat in the living room. Let's now have a meal together. With time, their access to my heart grows because they're proving that trustworthy nature. And what's beautiful here is that sometimes that conflict can actually result in a stronger relationship than before. Now, sometimes it's weaker. I think of it sometimes as like a heart attack. Someone in, suffers a heart attack, and there's damage as a result of that heart attack. That damage will never be healed. That, you know, that heart now is 70% or, or 68% going forward. There's just a certain amount of damage that will always exist. And there are some relationships where that offense is what it is, that there is damage now. And that's sometimes how it is. But there are other relationships, like a broken bone. You break a bone, and you set it properly, and you give it time to heal, and then you slowly build up the strength. Afterwards, that bone now is stronger at that point of break than it was before. And that's what God can do. That's what is possible if we're willing to follow this pathway of, rest of restoration and reconciliation. But if we're not, 
Paul's a warning for us in verse 11. He says that, see to it that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. If we don't engage in this restoration, if we don't engage in reconciliation, our marriages will suffer as a result of that. They will be hobbled. There will be mistrust. Our friendships will suffer. The, the body of Christ will suffer if we're not willing to at least engage in it. Because we will continue to carry that hurt, we'll carry that shame, and the enemy will make, have a field day with us in our hearts. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.